Today my guest is Barry Mulligan, business entrepreneur and serial investor. I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here. Great. Um, I will say heads up, I know Barry personally a little bit, so we're, we're going to have a bit of a laugh and some discussions, some stories uh, that, that could be interesting to the audience when they listen. First of all, Barry, would you give us uh, maybe just a quick overview of your career to date? I know you've done some interesting things and gone left and right and changed maybe direction. And within that, you might just bring us the high, some of the highs and lows and maybe some of the areas that you're most proud of that you'd like to be able to share with someone who might listen to this. Okay. <clears throat> I guess the most significant thing in my career is that I went to Romania when I was 25, 26 um, in the right place at the right time or the wrong place at the wrong time, whichever way you look at it. Um, Coca-Cola were developing in Romania at the time in 91, 92 and I went out there in late 92 um, to do some research for Coca-Cola and because there was there wasn't very many people who wanted to go to Romania at the time, I ended up becoming the um, head of sales and distribution for Coca-Cola Leventus, which had the franchise rights for half Romania. And I had a boss who I loved very dearly, but he um, had got to a stage in his career where he was very happy to stay put and do nothing and get my report on a Friday evening and be happy with that. So that allowed me to jump in and do what I wanted to do make lots of mistakes along the way and had him as a as a as a sounding board but he wasn't he wasn't going to be that active one way or the other so that was that was uh, that was good for me okay and then moving forward from romania you came back here and then well, i was in romania for 15 years so you know R romania was very significant for me so um when we set up coca-cola it was the fastest growing market in the world for coke in 1993 when we set up and that's a nice thing to be able to say, but the truth of the matter was a lot of the other FMCG companies were concentrating on the Poland's, Hungary's and Czech Republics of the world and, and, and losing money in Russia. Um, and Coke, of course, was everywhere. So, you know, there wasn't that many companies that were as active as we were in, in, in Romania. So to be the fastest growing country in the world wasn't, 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 wasn't so difficult, but it was a nice accolade nonetheless. Um, and from that, we developed a research product, again, at a laziness, I would say more than, and it was by, I would have to give credit to my partner at the time, uh, David Walsh, who created the product. We were doing some research for Coke, um, and he said, I'm not going out in minus 20 and taking down the names and addresses of every shop in Romania. So we got a bunch of students together, and that ended up becoming the basis of a research product that, that, is, that, that was, was a research product that we used throughout Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Russia, the stands, um, on behalf of Coca-Cola for many years, where we would literally have tens, 50, 75, 100 students in a city, and they would literally take a quadrant of a map and take down the names and addresses of every single shop. And that became the blueprint upon which the Coca-Cola distribution system for that city was built and the sales system on top of that. And whilst it was a very, very basic product, it was a very successful product and a, pro a research product that the Nielsen's of the world should have been doing in inverted commas, but it was too basic and too clunky for them to do. But they missed the point, in our opinion, um, in that it was very, very useful for Coca-Cola and it gave them a big start in the market. Okay. And then you left Romania, came back to Ireland, is that right? Or? Well, again, stay, staying with Romania for a while because it's, 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 it, my, my, for me, when I think about my career, it, it, it really is... 
80-20 in Romania. So I mean, so I left, I left COPE in 93, set up Mercury Research, which still exists, which is, I think, still the largest independent research company in Romania. Um, and Procter & Gamble, again, coming back to career inflection points, Procter & Gamble came to us and said, you know, we're Procter & Gamble, you're a small research company, we like research companies because they tell the truth. Advertising agencies, on the other on the other hand, are always trying to spin the truth, not necessarily not telling the truth, but spinning the truth. So we would like you to do a project for us. And I said, well, I mean, I, we're a research agency, we stick to the knitting, we focus on what we're good at, blah, blah, blah. He, by mistake, told me the project fee, and I pulled an all-nighter, and the project proposal was on his desk the next day. So it was not strategic at all. It was purely fortuitous. And that basically doubled the value, doubled the turnover of our business and brought us into a whole new business. And that was the beginning of our ad agency, which is still the largest independent advertising agency in Romania. But that was thanks to Procter & Gamble, not our thinking. And at that point, Procter & Gamble also said to us that, you know, what are a bunch of Irish guys doing running an advertising agency or a research agency in Romania when you don't understand anything to do with Romanian culture or the language or the nuances of it? Which is totally true. And that led to us, it was pretty depressing at the time to be honest with you, but it actually led to us then creating a succession plan and bringing in local partners at a much earlier stage than we would have because they kind of put the frighteners on us, if the truth be known. And as a result, we brought in partners very, very early. And that, that, had, the, that had two benefits. A, it made the business stronger and those partners are still in the business today and they still run the business today but it also freed me up from the day-to-day -day operations of the business because if somebody's coming in as a partner, well, they're taking over responsibility and running a business. And it made a lot of sense to us in terms of, look, actually the guys in Procter & Gamble are right. We don't understand the nuances of the culture. We will never speak the language perfectly. So we need to have people front and center running those businesses. And those people are there today and those businesses still run very successfully today. Was it hard though to let go, or what was the road to Damascus? The point, the road to Damascus, where you said, "Okay, we need to look at this," because sometimes in a small business, you 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 live it twenty four seven. There were there were two there were two sh shock points for me, um, as you asked that question. The first was my partner, my first Irish partner who I brought into the business, who kind of said, "Look, we just need to be more product focused. We need to develop products, otherwise we're selling our time." every day of the week. And I remember thinking, okay, but like, what is that? And, and, and we kind of fell into the research product and we kind of fell into the, the sampling projects uh, for Procter & Gamble, etc. But the biggest shock was when the mobile phone companies came to Romania and they just scoured the market for the best talent. And they kind of offered my number one guy, who's still my partner today, five times his salary. And I didn't know what to do. And I just looked at him as he said, Barry, I have no option. I have to take that. I have a family. What do you expect me to do? And I remember my reaction. There was no thought. I just said, the answer is I will find an answer. I have no clue what that answer is right now, but the answer is I'm going to find it. He went for a walk. I went for a walk. And I still remember this. He walked across the bridge, burst into tears. The two of us hugged. And I said, you know something? We're going to work it out. I said, bye. And I said, I'm even getting goosebumps now. And I remember it. Like, and that was the beginning of it. Like, so it wasn't me having the time or the ability or the privilege to, to think about it, to wonder about it, to let go of my babies. My babies were running out the door and my business was about to hit the floor 
right here, right now. And I knew that those mobile phone companies had no morals or no principles or didn't give a damn about me. Um, even though they were giving me big, big money in terms of, of projects they wanted me to do for them. Um, but that forced me to make some very snap decisions. And it was a gut decision in terms of, is he the right partner? Yes, he is. Do I trust him? Yes, he is. Is he hardworking? Yes, he is. Is it a risk? Yes, it is. Am I going to jump off the cliff? Yes, I am. Do I have a choice? No. So there was Got no, lucky. There was no shareholder agreements, none of this formal stuff that people talk about. It's just trust. You need to, to make it happen, though. Total trust. And you know something that's funny? I don't have a shareholder's agreement in Romania in that business today, either of those two businesses today. I've, I've spent many, many thousands on legal agreements with other people since, and they have not been as successful as those businesses. Um, and we often talk about it and say, oh, we must put a shareholder's agreement in place. We still don't have one. And I've been in business with those guys now for 25 plus years. And their services businesses, if they wanted to screw me, they would have screwed me a long time ago and they could be screwing me today. But honestly, they've never done it. I don't believe they're doing it. Perhaps that's naive. Of course it's naive in one respect in, in this kind of, you know, dog eat dog world where everything has to be kind of legally pinned down in every direction. But you know something, it works. And um, there you go. Interesting. And then, then you, I know you've been back here for a while, so you came back then. Yeah, I keep on going back. So, so again, coming back, because I think it's an interesting point. So having taken on the partners, my big, big thing, the big thing for me was that it gave me the freedom to get involved in other projects. Because now I said, okay, so you're, you're getting paid much more now. You've got a shareholding now. You're managing that business. And I, I, I stood back. The benefit of that was that it allowed me to, um, again, for, be open to new businesses. Like, so in, 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 a, in a developing market like Romania, you can go two ways. You can go deep and deep on a particular sector, or you can go scattergun on many sectors. And we chose to go scattergun on many sectors because there were opportunities apace coming at us. And again, because of our research business, Seagram came to us and said, look, we need to find a distributor for our products in Romania. We did the research. I presented them with the best distributors. I gave them all of the, the ways that they should do it. And basically they said, they turned around and said, well, look, we'd like you to do it. Why don't you become the distributor? And I said, I'm not. I, I actually like my kneecaps. I don't want to get into the whiskey business in Romania. Thanks very much. But actually, one of the benefits of Romania is that there is no mafia. There. I'm not saying there's no corruption, but there's no racketeering. There's no guns. It's not like the mafia in Russia or wherever, or Moldova or Bulgaria even. Um, so we did, and we, we ended up setting up that distribution business. And we built that business, and then we sold it back to Seagram. And then we got into the telecoms business. We won a license in conjunction with the German telecom operator, and we won that license. They went out of business in the dot-com bomb. So we owned 100% of a telecoms business, but knew nothing about telecoms. So we did an MBA in telecoms basically in, in the early 2000s, and we eventually sold that business to, to Orange. And then we got into the medical waste business, and we were the first piece people in Romania to get into medical waste. And again, we built that business up and we sold it to, to, to the US people. But again, it was fortuitous. Again, I, again I, would, I, would, I would always kind of say that there was a great lack of strategy at one level. Now, in retrospect, it's very easy to put these things into context and go, well, we were always focused on business services. So with, you know, the advertising agency, business services, market research, business services, telecoms, business services, you know, distribution, business services, medical waste, business services. Um, but, and, and, and of course, the, the platform upon which that was built in terms of 
Romania having many opportunities to somebody who had an ability to put, bring some commercial mouse to the, the project or to bring some money from outside to the project or money you'd made in Romania to the project allowed us to do those things um, and, uh, and, 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 then, and then move on from there. So it was really after we sold the medical waste business that I came back to Romania. Okay. Yeah. And when I came back from Romania initially, to be honest, I was... What year, what year was that? I came back 2006, 2007. So the world hadn't ended. The world had not ended. And did you know the world was going to Did you have a sense of it? I, I didn't. I didn't have a sense of it. I was kind of 40. I was kind of deciding was I going to spend the rest of my life in Romania or was I going to go somewhere else or was I going to come home? And for me, I had to come home as, 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 the, as the nucleus of, my, of, of my, my life, if you like. But I genuinely thought that I might go somewhere else from here. But I, I, I kind of enjoyed coming back here. I was, I was pretty shook by the kind of the Celtic tiger in terms of, of it didn't necessarily bring in out the best human traits in a lot of people who'd, who, who, I, who I knew from, from school or from college or whatever. Um, but thankfully, you know, they, they're, 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 they're all right now. <laughs> um, and I took a few board positions to kind of get to know the country a bit better, to get to know the market a bit better, to get to know people a bit better. Um, and then, of course, the, doc, the, 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 the collapse happened and, and, and everything went um, down, down, the, down the tubes. And I was still looking around at, at various opportunities and I looked at, at buying a few companies, both here and in the UK. And after a while, I, I, I realised that I didn't want, I wanted to be involved in a business that had an international dimension to it. And I wasn't quite sure what that would be. Um, and eventually, um, I ended up investing in uh, the buyout of Graft and Recruitment, which is a business in the south of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, but a much more significant business in Northern Ireland. Um, but its main business was really in Eastern Europe, in, in Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, and had an executive search business, which had operations in the Middle East and, and across Europe and, and in the UK. So that, I thought, was interesting from my perspective in terms of Again, coming back to business services, it was quite similar to advertising or to market research or, but you know, you, you were always, it was business to business. It made sense to me. I felt comfortable. Eastern Europe, I felt comfortable with. Um, I'd always felt that recruitment would have been something that I would have naturally, I could have naturally fallen into as a, as a, as a 21 or 22 year old anyway. So I worked in that and that, we got involved in that in probably 2011. Um, and it was a tough slog to, you know, Grafton was, was, a, was a fairly sizable um, recruitment agency in that it probably had about 600 people in total, kind of 350 in Europe, 100 in executive search and 150 in Ireland in rough numbers. Um, uh, it didn't have a market position in the Republic of Ireland, um, where CPL are obviously very dominant. Um, it did have a strong market position in the north of Ireland, but very much in the blue collar space. Um, whereas in, in Czech Republic in particular, it was very much the CPL equivalent in the Czech Republic. And it was number three or number four in Poland and Hungary. And, and in the executive search business, it had a little niche that, it, that, uh, that, that worked for it. So that was, a, that was kind of all-consuming in, in many regards um, in terms of trying to restructure that business and in terms of trying to hire the right people into that business to then go on to hire the right people for, 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 for its clients. Um, so that was that was that was good. It was was it was enjoyable. And in a parallel to that, I guess from two thousand and 
9, 10, I started investing in young technology companies as an angel investor. And I got to know a group of people who were also angel investing. Um, and we invested in, in various companies. And, that, and that, that was, that's, that's where I, 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 I felt a lot of passion. And I, I, there were young entrepreneurs who I felt were starting on a road that I felt I had been on. Like a developing market in terms of technology to me was the same as a developing market, which was Romania. Where might your product go? What might you do? How might you pivot? How might you develop? You need to be nimble. You need to be agile in different ways than if you were setting a business that was focused on an already established market. So, so it, it's not clear necessarily where, where a technology business might go, just as it wasn't clear to us in the early years in Romania where a marketing business might go and where that might lead you to. So I felt very comfortable with that mindset and with those people. And I enjoyed hanging out with them. I enjoyed talking to them. I enjoyed kind of um, just strategizing with them in terms of where or how they might do things or, or, or you know, where the road might go. So I um, made a number of investments alongside a group of investors um, that I was part of and became very close with two people in particular, Conor Stanley and Tygo Two. And we founded Tribal together in about 2014, I think it was, 2013, 2014, but we, formally, but we were doing investments together in the preceding years. Um, but we felt we'd be more nimble and more agile if we were working as a trio than as part of just a wider angel network. And that's, that's worked quite well. We've probably made, I don't know, 25, 30 investments over the years. Um, Thankfully, some of the companies have done quite well. Um, some of the companies are certainly on a positive road. Some of the companies have unfortunately failed. That's part of the of the portfolio approach to investing. And what what ingredients now? I suppose you've had a number of years doing this, and like when you start off, you're never one hundred percent sure. And I suppose maybe you make mistakes or the market goes against you. You refine your your methodology. So what what are kind of the five? How do you look at a company now? Out of curiosity, people must be, the product must be kind of two of the variables. I'm just curious how you, how you actually just, your gut looking at something, what's the kind of the quick synopsis and barriers going when you see something and say, okay, that looks okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm 54 a couple of days ago and I was joking with my wife kind of going, wow, did I really need to learn it was all about people one more time? Wow, that's amazing that I actually had to learn that lesson one more time. So it's all about people. So when I meet a, a young startup company, um, it is all about the person. So, you know, do they have integrity? And it's, it's you know, that, that seems like a pretty basic question, but actually, you know, it's pretty important because you're, you, you're typically a minority investor in a company. And um, does that person actually genuinely appreciate you alongside them? Or are you just, access to cash? Are you just a bank matter that they don't really care about and once they can move on to the next level they're going to, to kind of you know move on from you? Or, or, is there, or is there actually some sort of bond between you that actually makes sense that there's a chemistry between you that you and, and you actually know or feel or believe that you're something to add and they know or feel that through communication and conversation that you can get something from each other. And there are a number of examples where that's worked quite successfully and there's a number of examples where it hasn't worked for us. You know, and sometimes you can get a bit kind of rose tinted glasses about a particular product or a particular market, and it's very, very big, and you might jump in, and suddenly you, you realize 
Actually, I didn't go through my first filter, which was the people filter, as rigorously as I should have. And if I was purely employing that person, I might have been much more rigorous in my evaluation of that person as opposed to getting wide-eyed or bright-eyed, rose-tinted glasses about the size of the opportunity and forgetting to put the person front and centre. So that's the first thing, without doubt. And when I say the person, I mean the team. So it's not just the one person. Um, because, and, and it's also, it's, it's very interesting to see startup founders. You, you want startup founders to make sure they hang on to a big chunk of the company, but you also want to see them as open to allowing others get their hands on some of the equity because that is critical and important to the success of the business. And, and if the founder isn't the sales guy or if the founder isn't the product technology guy at the, in the very early stages, you kinda, you're asking yourself the question, well, well, why are you at the table if you're not dominating one of those two stakes in the early days? Because there, there aren't a million seats at the table in the early days. So, so you need to be wearing one of those key caps, either you know, developing the product or, or selling the product. Interesting. And just, just to go back and thank you, thank you for the overview there. Most, most interesting, your, your variety of businesses and variety of hats you've, you've, you've had and how you've evolved, evolved in, in approaching them and obviously learning from previous industries and moving into the next industry. Any funny stories you'd like to share that's just, even the stupid stuff, something that kind of resonates that you can go back, there's always... We did a huge project. We, so, so we used to do these projects for Coke, these research projects for Coke, and I in Russia, and I persuaded Coke to give me a thousand dollars that we would throw a party with before the project because my attitude was there's no point in having a party after the project because then the project's done. I'd I want to I want to I want to feel the love before the project. So when we start the project, that actually we have the momentum of that party and the momentum of that kind of you know bonding session, and we get through it because it became fairly boring, and we used to put a, a little thing in place where people would get paid more every day because it was pretty mundane work. So on the last day, you'd get paid quite a big bunch of cash for your final day. Um, and I was working, myself and three Romanians were running this project in Novosibirsk in Siberia. And at that stage, I would come for the first week, the three Romanian guys would remain for the last five weeks, and I'd typically come back, wrap it all up, and we'd all go home. As it happened, I couldn't come for the last few days of that project, I can't remember why. And there was before mobile phones. And I used to kind of arrange at three o'clock on a Sunday, I'd talk to the guys, and then, you know, we talk whenever during the week. So on the Sunday, it was a pretty quick call. Yeah, we finished the project, uh, talk to you Wednesday. And I remember feeling there's something wrong there. I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong. What had happened was these guys who we got to know very well um, had decided that they were going to, so there was 60 people who did the project, took us eight weeks. So that's 480 man weeks. So basically the guts of 10 man years of work was filled into these questionnaires, which we were there then going to input into a computer obviously, and then kind of use that as the base for the distribution system, blah, blah. They had stolen all of the questionnaires. And then that was the time that we culturally learned a new lesson, all of us. In Russia, having the power is critical. And that was the first time I learned about that thing in Russia, in terms of who has the power. And they basically sent a mission down to tell the three remaining guys that we now have the power, let's negotiate. And we, we were friends with these people, we knew these people, but when it came to owning power, they were prepared to trade that friendship 
for, for what they could get from the, uh, from the deal. The three remaining guys, in fairness to them, turned around and said, you've no idea how bad that Irish guy is. He'll make our families pay for this for the rest of our days. We're Romania, we're, we're, we're the poor cousin of Russia. We're now going to have to basically walk home and, and kind of, you know, eat bread and water for the rest of our days, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Anyway, the guys obviously played the theater quite well. The questionnaires were dumped on the hotel doorsteps, all of them, and the project was finished to, to, its, to its satisfaction. But unfortunately, the Frenchies were lost in the process. That's it, because you could put that in the staff handbook, or maybe you have all yeah, these... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please don't steal the samples, you know, yeah. it's not good. And if you didn't go the path that you went, I'm just you know, going back to your 24-year-old self before you went walk about to Romania, um, what might you do? If, you know, if you had time to back and to be a doctor, or I want to be a professional footballer, and yeah. why? If, yeah, sure. I, when I was leaving school, um, I wanted to do commerce. I didn't get enough points to get into commerce. So I did economics because it was the only other word that I knew that sounded like commerce. I did economics as well. Yeah. Pure economics. Pure economics. Group nine. Group nine. Right. Pure, econo- pure I economics. Know, I didn't know that. So. Yeah. And, um, the, uh, and the only reason I did pure economics was because it sounded like the closest thing to commerce. I had no interest. I, no, I had no interest and I don't really still understand economics. Um, but that's the only reason I did it. Um, and it's a, it was a real pity because, you know, career guidance back in our day was, in my opinion, pretty appalling. Um, and, uh, and there were no jobs at the time. So the idea of doing something that was a bit off centre was ludicrous almost, which was a real pity. But the funny thing was, I remember looking, looking through the list of subjects in arts and the one subject that I wanted to do was psychology. Because there was, was always a natural interest in people, and there was always I'd, I'd always kind of naturally read some of those books, and I, I could see myself reading those books, but I didn't have the confidence to do it, um, and uh, so I didn't. So so I don't know if I'd done that, where I might have gone. God on readiness. That's interesting. It's funny. I, I would love to be a professional footballer for some reason, maybe because Roy the Rover has gone back in the day or the comics. Yeah, and, yeah. And we'd we'd I don't know, you I'm a little bit older than you, but you'd have the. Uh, um, you buy the chewing gum with the with the, the football stickers, which you fill in the in the football album. Yeah. To try to fill the team. So I always remember that it was kind of a thing that before obviously no social media, no mobile phones was always something I wanted to do. Just if workplace stress, mindfulness, moving jobs every three years, this is kind of a, a topic in the, the the kind of work life balance. Do you have any comments or thoughts around that? So I think I think mindfulness is great. I think meditation is great. I think I think going for a walk in the mountains or down the pier, um, uh, looking after yourself and, and, and making sure that you love yourself and recognize that if you don't love yourself, nobody else is going to love you, is 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 all very 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 important stuff and and, and it can be described in many many different ways. Um, I I I think sometimes the work life balance thing can can become an end in itself and. Sometimes people miss the point in terms of you know, there's various times in your in your life in your career that you're going to work much harder at something and and that's okay. So for example, somebody might be really really into rugby and they may spend you know three or four or five years of, of their life dedicating their life to rugby and they don't they don't have a rugby life balance at that moment in life and that's okay because they have a huge amount of fun and enjoyment from the rugby 
during that period, or, or I use rugby as an example, any sport, any pastime. And I think when you, get, when you throw yourself into something and get consumed by it, sometimes it delivers a lot. You know, I, I didn't study in college. I don't mean that in a, in a kind of a, a way where I was bright enough to get through it. I, I just, I just BS'd my way through it is, is the absolute truth. Now, the, the, the great shame of that is that I know nothing about economics. So I went to university for four years because I took the scenic route, repeating a year, and I still know nothing about economics, which is pretty sad, actually, in, in, on reflection. It would be much better to throw myself into it and learn about economics. There was a guy that grew up beside me who went on to become an economist, and so did his brother. But I remember them throwing themselves into economics and reading every book and being voracious about the subject and being very passionate about the subject and loving every minute of it. But they'd know economics, life balance. You know, they were doing lots of things, but they were very, very happy. You know, so I, th I think the work-life balance can be can sometimes be a bit of a distraction. Of course, it's a good idea because balance is a good idea. Mm -hmm. But you know, everything in moderation, including balance. So be in balance sometimes. That's great too. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting, it's an interesting. It's talked about a lot. I suppose emails, this instant communication is obviously positive on one level because you can, you can you can get to people when you need to. But sometimes there can be a bit too much communication coming in, so people don't get that break. I do hanker back sometimes today as we put the days we could put something in the post. And I'll go into the post and it'll take a couple of days to get to the client. Yeah. The client would look at it yeah. and put it back in the post. Take a couple of days to get back. It was kind of nice. No, totally. And I mean, I think I, so that, that, that's a great example. I mean, I think in, in, to somehow manage, and I would have to hold my hands up and say I don't, still don't manage it very well, you know, not responding to emails late and not taking late phone calls and not on, on, instant, um, on the various instant messengers in terms of WhatsApp or whatever it might be. Is, is a good idea. But it's also not always possible. No, I accept that. Last question. What do you look for when you hire people, recruit people? Honesty. Honesty, integrity, you know, numero uno. That's absolutely for sure. Um, a curiosity, a passion, an energy, um, a different take on stuff, as opposed to just, I think, I think it's very easy to hire in the middle of the ground. Um, as opposed to the guy, the, the, the outlier, who has a particular skill or a particular ability to look at things in a different way. I think it's also, I also try to double check myself in terms of not hiring myself. I think it's very easy to hire explain, yourself. Ex explain that to me. We, we, uh, or we, maybe from experience. We, so we, we all like people who are, are somewhat like ourselves. And, and, and you know, if, you, if you look at your own circle of friends and, and people who you like, you, they, they, you have a lot in common. And, and that's, that's a natural thing. That's what brings people together. However, if you're putting a team together, if you're, if you're all the same, well, have a guess what? You're probably very strong on two or three things, but you're not very strong on 23 things. That's just not possible. So for the, for the guy, there's a good particular guy I'm thinking about um, who is a, you know, was, was a very, very strong junior hurler um, and, a, and an absolute mathematical genius, but he was socially very awkward. But absolutely would wipe the floor with anybody and everybody that I ever met when it came to that mathematical capability. Um, and we always got on very well and, and it always worked very well together. But he always thought about things in a completely different way to me and asked me questions which I didn't understand the question nor the answer, but he did have the patience to take me through it. He would look at me and kind of go, I just not great with people. He said, so how does that work? How do you talk to him? You're very patient with him. Why? He, he's clearly doing this out of the other. And I was, and I remember looking at him, kind of going, 
well, you're, you're being slightly unfair and you're looking at him as if he's a quadratic equation. That's not really the way to look at him. That's the only way he knew how to look at that's the, that's, That was his way. So you were able to be a translator or, 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 or maybe show a different lens he might look at people? And, and, and he, he me, and he and, me. And, and vice versa. And he me, yeah. yeah it's really, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. listen, Barry, that's the end of our podcast. I'd like to thank you so much for coming Thank on you today. very much. And wish you all the best in your future endeavours and whatever industry you might end up in. Thank you very much. Thank you, James. Thank you for listening to The Career Scoop, brought to you by Elevate Career Advice and Elevate Executive Selection Dublin and Bermuda. I'm James Fitzsimons, and I hope you've enjoyed listening. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes on The Career Scoop.